This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Oncogene Brief, I talk with Laura Panos-Smith, a certified genetic counselor and vice president of commercial operations at Ember Genetics. Ms. Smith leads a large team responsible for the implementation of key strategic initiatives for Ember Genetics. This includes the daily support and education for patients and healthcare providers, as well as marketing and sales support functions. Ms. Smith has been with Ember Genetics since 2013, and she has held a number of positions most recently as the National Director of the Genetic Specialists Team, a position she held for three years. Before joining the company, she worked as a board-certified genetic counselor at Baylor Simmons Cancer Center in Dallas, Texas, where she led an initiative to grow the oncology and cardiology genetic services. Ember Genetics, the company Ms. Smith works for, is a leading clinical diagnostics company offering genetic testing, which includes screening and diagnosis for conditions including hereditary cancer, hereditary cardiovascular disease, neurodevelopmental disorders, epilepsy, and others. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. As part of Conica Minolta Precision Medicine, Ember Genetics translates scientific research into what company calls clinically actionable test results based upon a deep understanding of the human genome and the biology behind genetic disease. This enables more prescriptive, proactive, and preventive care. But what is genetic testing? As mentioned in a previous episode of the Oncogene Brief, genetic testing is a specific, special type of medical test designed to identify changes in an individual's chromosomes, genes, or proteins. A genetic test can confirm or rule out a suspected genetic condition. It can also help determine a person's chance of developing or even passing on a genetic disorder, which may lead to a specific disease. Generally, there are two main types of genetic testing. If, for example, you have been diagnosed with a type of cancer, the doctor may have told you about a somatic or tumor testing test. Such a test involves a sample of the tumor. This test studies the DNA to determine what kind of treatment may be best for you as a patient. It may look at different targeted or even personalized treatments to determine which may be better or worse for you as a patient. An oncologist or his or her team will be the best resource to discuss this type of genetic testing and the outcome. The second type of genetic testing is called germline genetic testing. This test is using a blood or saliva sample. The DNA in blood cells is studied to see if there is a mutation that causes an increased risk to develop cancer or another disease. This test is both for people who have a specific disease, such as cancer, but also for people who do not. And the results of this test can be best discussed with a genetic counselor or healthcare provider. While genetic testing is available for many people, it may not make sense for everyone. A genetic counselor can help a patient determine their risk for genetic disease and catch genetic diseases at an earlier, more treatable phase. The Oncuzine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal Oncuzine at www.oncuzine.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis, and the treatment and cancer prevention. Let's listen to our interview with Ms. Laura Panos-Smith.
With me here is Laura Panos-Smith. Welcome, Laura, to um, the Ongerzin Brief. Now, before um, we go into all kinds of things about uh, what you do for the company you work for, it's uh, Embryk Genetics, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got here. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate you having me on the Ongerzin Brief. I am a board-certified genetic counselor. And so what I did was I went to graduate school to study genetics and and focused on both medical genetics as well as counseling and psychology. And with that degree, for a while, I worked in clinical practice, seeing patients who had hereditary cancer syndromes or who were at risk of hereditary cancer syndromes uh, and helping them understand what genetic testing could or could not do for them in their specific situation. I focused mainly on oncology, but I spent a little bit of time in cardiology as well and really started to enjoy the wide amount of genetic testing that was available and how many different patients and specialties it could impact. And so I started to look for another opportunity in a larger scale of how I could understand and explain genetics better to the community, including both patients and healthcare providers. And I ended up coming to work at a diagnostic laboratory company and have done a variety of things in the diagnostic laboratory, ranging from technical sales to product marketing. And now I'm running the commercial operations department where I'm able to really spend my time focused on the goals of the company, such as expanding access to care and identifying more patients who qualify for genetic testing and ensuring that patients who do genetic testing are getting appropriate information and are able to make well-informed healthcare decisions. Now, there is one thing that you mentioned there that's quite interesting. You said it's like that you look for people who might qualify for genetic counseling or for genetic test. It's not all people. It doesn't, doesn't that work for all people? Well, anyone can have genetic testing. That's a great question. But what we're trying to focus on are the people who would really benefit from it. So we're looking for people who have an increased risk of disease based on their personal or family history of testing. And this does two things for us. One, it increases the likelihood that an insurance company would pay for their testing. So the access to testing would be easier for them. But it also helps us focus our efforts on patients who need testing the most and who have the highest risk of having a hereditary condition. For example, uh, a woman with a very early diagnosis of breast cancer at age 30 would be likely to have a genetic mutation compared to a woman who's 75 and has never had breast cancer. So we're really trying to focus our educational efforts and our outreach around populations that would benefit the most from genetic testing. And when you said access and, and insurance companies, I mean, I assume that those tests are different than the genetic tests that are advertised on TV. If you look at TV and you listen to the radio, you often hear about tests that actually talk about uh, somebody's in um, ancestry, about somebody's uh, background, why that is all very exciting stuff, I guess. But a test that you are working at and that are covered by insurance in some cases, uh, they are different. They are different and and the focus is different. So with the testing that you see on on the TV shows and here on the radio, that's more of what I describe as recreational genetic testing. It's fun to do. People can find out that their family is from certain countries. They can find out if they like the taste of cilantro or asparagus and, and how quickly they can metabolize certain things. Those tests may also provide you with some level of risk for disease, but they're not what I would call diagnostic. They're not telling you for certain that you have a mutation in a gene that is known to cause 
either an increased risk of something or a genetic syndrome. And what we focus on in the clinical genetic space is trying to help people understand why certain diseases are running in their families and what they can do to prevent the disease or reduce the risk of the disease in themselves and others in future generations. Now, you work with doctors? Correct. In, in other words, I mean, if, if an oncologist and hematologist or in, in other areas, maybe a cardiologist or another doctor um, says, well, hey, there may be a kind of a risk in, in or a genetic uh, component to your disease. They may recommend that, the, that they are going to a company like yours um, or they order a test for the patient. What does a doctor try to find out? Um, does it help with the, the actual treatment of the patient? I mean, what are the the things that really important for the physician? So with patients who already have the disease, one of the first questions is why or what was the cause of the disease? And genetic testing can certainly help with that. If you have an, an abnormal arrhythmia, your heart beats in an abnormal pattern, we can determine if that's caused by a genetic condition. That alone could be helpful because there's drugs or lifestyle factors that might also cause your heart to beat abnormally. So being able to pinpoint the cause is always helpful. Um, another reason people do genetic testing and they use this information for is to help their family members understand if they're also at risk. If I know that my mother had cardiomyopathy, my risk is likely 50% to inherit the same mutation if it was genetic. Um, whereas if my mom just had cardiomyopathy by chance and it's not genetic, I would know my risk is much less and that could be very helpful for me. Finally, the most exciting, to, in my opinion, is the ability to really customize treatment based on genetic tests. And in the last few years, we've been able to find more drugs that are either specifically targeted or work uh, well with certain genetic mutations. And so we've been able to reduce the impact of some of these genetic mutations in patients when we're able to pair it with a, a personalized medicine or a specific drug. Let's take a break. After the break, we're back with Laura Panos-Smith. Ms. Smith is a certified genetic counselor and vice president of commercial operations at Ember Genetics. Did you know that generic drugs are just as safe and effective as brand name drugs? Generics might look different, but they work the same way. And they can even save you money. Don't believe me? Ask your doctor or pharmacist or visit FDA.gov slash generic drugs. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hofflin and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Alcazine Brief. If you're just joining us, today in the Alcazine Brief, I talk with Laura Panos Smith. Ms. Smith is a certified genetic counselor and vice president of commercial operations at Ember Genetics. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Alcazine Brief. 
Now, when, when you look at genetic testing and you actually refer to personalized or really targeted uh, medicine in that case, a lot of new drugs that come to market, especially if you look at, at PD-1, uh, PD-L1s or very targeted, very specific drugs that block uh, genetic components of a, a cancer, for example, um, you look at um, very heavily constructed drugs like antibody drug conjugates, uh, which involve different components. You look at so-called CAR-T uh, cell therapy, which is really hyper-personalized in terms of um, how it's being developed and how it's being given to a patient. Those drugs don't benefit everybody. They they really kind of work on, on the individual. A genetic tests, the, the, the things that you do, are they helpful in, in making or helping patients in that case or making sure that that drug is the right drug for the right patient? Definitely. And and that utility of genetic testing is increasing. Probably five, 10 years ago, the utility of doing genetic testing to determine if you qualified for a drug, a particular drug was very low, but we've learned a lot in terms of which drugs help which genetic diseases. And it's allowed us to, to perform genetic testing with the intent of determining if that patient would qualify for a particular medication. We see it a lot in the oncology space, both in the inherited space, which is what we focus on, as well as in the somatic space. And somatic means not inherited. It's just within the tumor itself. Uh, but we're also seeing it in other subspecialties. Cystic fibrosis is a well-known genetic condition where there is a specific drug that can treat if you have one of 38 different gene mutations. Uh, we're working with cardiovascular companies that have developed specific drugs for inherited uh, genetic conditions. So the utility of it is expanding and it's really helping us select the patients that would benefit most from certain drugs. Now, when you look at... Um the genetic information that you did you collect or that basically you give to the patient. One of the concerns often is that patients say, hey, well, this is my information. This is me. And uh, beyond me and my doctor, who is going to have access to that information? The information that you call or that, that you get is valuable also in in terms of, for example, drug development with pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies. Um, how do you protect patients and their individual information, um, if you share that information, how do you protect them from who they are? So patient identification is always hidden. It's always a protected asset by law. And we do not release identifying factors about patients who've had genetic testing to researchers or pharmaceutical drug companies um, unless permission was explicitly given by the patient. So when there's partnerships from genetic testing laboratories and, and researchers to try to understand and advance genetic medicine, patients' information is, is de-identified and is, is put into a cohort. So you can see a thousand patients were tested. This was their the way they presented the symptoms that they had. And here is the collective results. So they certainly try to summarize wherever possible and remove identifying factors so that patient's autonomy um, and independence uh, can really be preserved. So that means that if I would, or if my doctor would say, hey, you need to do this test, um, I don't have to be afraid that my employer or uh, my insurance company or whoever it is may start knocking on my door and said, hey, this is something that we want to discuss with you. That's really not the case. That's, that's a great question, Peter. And you know, with your employer, I, I think I'm 
pretty confident to say that's not the case. There's no way your employer could, could access the genetic testing from a reputable laboratory. Uh, with your insurance company, though, there, there are concerns, and the concerns can be because your doctor has put into your medical record that genetic testing was ordered because here was the symptoms that you presented with, and typically patients will use their insurance benefits to pay for genetic testing, and this insurance company can go back in and ask to see those results to ensure that the the test that they paid for was the test that was ordered. Uh, and so patients sometimes don't know that that's a possibility. Um, and if they do know that, they, they have concerns because they don't want to face discrimination. There is a law that was passed in 2008 in the U.S. called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And that law was passed specifically to protect individuals from employment discrimination as well as uh, health insurance discrimination. And there's, there's limitations to it. It doesn't protect uh, small companies with few employers nor does it uh, protect long-term life insurance or disability insurance, but it does have some preliminary level of protection. So I encourage people who have concerns about their information being released outside of their physician to consult um, with, with an attorney or to review the legislature to understand where their protection starts and stops. Additionally, some states have other protections in place that could help them further than the federal law. Um, but that's, that's a fantastic question and, and something people often worry about before they go forth with genetic testing. Yeah, I, I can imagine that is a question. And I think that's uh, to make sure that people are not confronted with things they don't want to, going to be confronted or might be confronted is actually good to know that they have protection in that case. Can you talk a little bit more about that? There are tests that are specifically designed to understand disease or to to link your genetic profile to a disease. And then there are tests, uh, I think Embry is more involved in those things, that are really have a more predictive or a more historical background of who you are genetically and how that impacts you. Can you tell me a little bit about the difference between those tests? Definitely. So with the clinical grade test, which is what I classify what, what Ambry and many other companies are doing that are looking at medical information and trying to provide diagnostic answers to patients, is we're looking at a, a person or a family that has a history of disease or risk to this disease, and we're really trying to find the answer. Why does the patient have this condition? How did this happen? What is the cause? So we're really looking at a, a black and white result when possible to explain disease and to give them a plan to reduce the disease burden in the future. On the flip side, you have your recreational genetic tests, which are the tests that patients can usually access on their own. They don't need to go to a physician or a genetic counselor to get those tests done. And they can learn about their ancestry. They can learn about some fun facts about how fast they run or what color their children's eyes will be, all of these things that are interesting, but really don't impact how we take care of ourselves and the medical management we seek from providers. I think you're asking the question because there's often confusion. People will do mm -hmm. a direct-to-consumer test online and that result might come back and say there's an elevated risk of breast cancer. And so the patient might get confused and think that that's the same thing as having a diagnostic test run that says that they have a mutation in the BRCA1 gene, for example. So there's, there's confusion there and there is an overlap and 
having someone help you to understand those results is, is really the best recommendation I can get to understand if you've had a clinical grade test or more of that recreational test. Now, again, if you if you look at those recreational tests, I mean, uh, I've done one with uh, a famous company that looks at my family tree. I found some very interesting, and that's pure recreational, these kind of the fun things I find from family members or ancestry that goes to, uh, well, uh, 10, 20, 30, 100 years back and, and even further. It's quite interesting. It's it's entertaining. It's 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 a fun to do. I can, if, if you like that kind of stuff, I definitely can recommend people to do that. It doesn't, in my case, it didn't tell me anything about uh, the potential of a particular disease. Uh, so I hope that I'm completely healthy in that respect. But I mean, there are tests that indeed tell people, like you, like you mentioned, about the potential or a chance or an elevated risk of disease. If you get a result like that and you go to one of those direct-to-consumer organizations, um, you order a test and you get this information back. I can imagine that you as a as as an individual, you're not a patient, but as an individual that does something to for, for fun, for the recreational aspect of it, you get that message, you are definitely concerned. I mean, it might be really kind of um, well, almost freaking out in, in, in some ways, right? I mean, very, very bad for somebody. What would you recommend somebody to do when they get a message like that? I mean, is it too early, too late to to talk to their doctor or to go um, to a genetic counselor and, and, and ask to explain that. What are some of the steps you can do to make sure that you understand what that means? It's never too late to have the conversation and with the doctor or genetic counselor. I encourage it all the time. If you have a genetic test and you don't understand the implications, to find someone who can help you to do it. Uh, it's, I would recommend it before going through genetic testing if that's possible. But at any point in the process, during or after getting the results back, it can really help make sense of what that information means. Uh, with with the your personal example, the negative test. That's that's my first word of caution. Is these recreational tests? They don't look at health risks in many cases, or if they do, they look at very small components of the health risk. And so, a negative result, while that's reassuring, it's not explaining the full picture. So we would always want someone who has a real concern of having a disease uh, to make sure they're getting the most comprehensive test available to look at all of the genes that could cause it. And so that's the first recommendation I'd have for people when they're thinking of talking to a genetic counselor or physician who's knowledgeable in the space is, did the tests I have cover and look for the questions that I have about my health? And if not, how can you help me get that additional testing? Let's take a short break here, and then we continue our interview with Laura Panos-Smith. Ms. Smith is a certified genetic counselor and vice president of commercial operations at Ember Genetics. Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Are you thinking about buying medicine online? A search for online pharmacies yields more than 20 million results. But which ones can you trust? Medicines bought from unlicensed online pharmacies can be dangerous. You may get a fake drug, your condition may get worse, or you may experience a bad reaction. Don't put your health at risk. 
to learn how to find an online pharmacy that's safe and legal, visit fda.gov slash besaferx. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. Welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongesim Brief. If you're just joining us, today in the Ongesim Brief, I talk with Laura Panos-Smith. Ms. Smith is a certified genetic counselor and vice president of commercial operations at Ember Genetics. On the flip side, if a result came back that was positive, sometimes the testing that is done at a recreational lab isn't intended to report out on these high disease risks. And so it's not a knock to their technical capabilities. That's just not the intention of the test or, or why the test was designed in the first place. So the level of quality and scrutiny that goes into interpreting those results is very different than the report that they produce intentionally that you can download on their website and, and use. Um, and it's also very different than what a diagnostic laboratory is reporting. So I would always recommend if you've got a, a meaningful result that says you have an increased risk of disease from a recreational test to speak to a physician and genetic counselor before you make any decisions regarding your health um, and before your entire family is alarmed and is now seeking the same thing. Uh, So to go in and have that conversation, learn what the risks really are and learn if additional testing could be helpful to further understand if that result is real and what the impact of that result might be. I think that is very reassuring to make sure that even if you do a test, uh, you can order uh, from uh, a website or or, or after a TV program uh, that you understand that um, the information you you do get is it's valid, but it's it's not complete. So to make sure that you are actually, if you're concerned, that you actually go to your doctor, if necessary, a genetic counselor, and and get the complete information or the complete interpretation uh, from what is given you as a result. Exactly. Now, you are, as an organization, you are working with some of those direct-to-consumer companies. One of those companies is called My Gene Council. Tell me a little bit about that relationship and what you're actually doing for them. Yeah, so uh, My Gene Council actually connects us with patients who have had direct-to-consumer testing. So My Gene Council doesn't necessarily provide the direct-to-consumer testing themselves, but they help patients who've had genetic testing through DTC companies uh, learn what their risks really mean and learn if confirmatory genetic testing would be helpful. So our partners at MyGene Council will identify patients who are concerned about the results of their direct-to-consumer testing. Maybe they got a positive back and they're not ready to act on the result or they want confirmation that it's appropriate to act on it. Or maybe the result was negative and they were really expecting to find something meaningful about their health on that result. So that company will actually meet with the patients and provide genetic counseling to the patients and then coordinate genetic testing through our laboratory for patients who need additional testing done so that we can ensure that they're acting on accurate and meaningful test results. And you refer to complementary tests if necessary, if, if uh, the, the, the team at my gene council thinks that there is a need to do that to make sure that people are reassured. Correct. Now, as an individual, as, as a genetic counselor, because you're trained as a genetic counselor, you be able to help people. Do you think it's it's okay for people that might not have a medical background 
might not necessarily understand all the implications to have direct access to their uh, genetic profile unrestrained in that respect? It's a hard question, but it's clearly one I've thought a lot about, and I do believe people should have access to their genetic testing information. It's innately ours. Our genetic code makes us who we are, and if anyone should be able to access that, I do believe it's us. And we should also be able to access who else can determine, can look at our genetic information, who we want to see and who we don't want to see our our genetic information. Where I provide caution and where having this information can be concerning is that people don't understand genetics. This is concepts that for many of us, we haven't thought about since eighth grade science class. And it's, it's not something we discuss regularly with our friends and family. And therefore, it's very hard for us to understand what the genetic testing information means. And so I encourage people to be as proactive as they can. If they want to have that access and they want to learn more about their genetics, to make sure they're using appropriate resources to understand the information, they're seeking out guidance from individuals who are trained and are experts in the space. And it it helps me compare it to finance. I don't know if this will help you or any of your listeners, but we all have access to our own money and we can spend it how we choose. Some of us are better than others at saving and investing and, and making decisions and distinctions between loans and stocks and bonds and all of these things, and often seeking a financial advisor to help us with their money is something that people will do. The same is true with genetics. We can do what we want with our own genetic information but we'll make better choices if we research them and we seek expert opinion to help us understand and manage that information. Now, I think it's a good analogy to look at, for example, the financial stuff. I mean, because that may be something that people are more aware or acutely aware of. But how, for example, um, if you, um, and in most cases, when you look at the, the genetic profile, so the genetic testing, I mean, outside the recreational stuff, most people are concerned about getting a disease or having a risk for a disease. Um, those are always very, um, could be very negative in, in, in some ways, right? But it doesn't always have to be that way. I mean, tell me some of the you know, the more beneficial things for you outside of the recreational stuff that really might guide you in the future to live a healthier life, for example. I think a lot of people have uh, unfounded fears of what their risks really are. So uh, a lot of people will see there's cancer in my family. I know I will get cancer, but many of those people don't understand how cancer is really inherited. And it could have been exposures or lifestyle factors that caused their family's disease. and, And they don't have that risk. And so doing genetic testing or at least meeting with somebody who can explain what the likelihood of a genetic condition is can be really reassuring for people. And we find some individuals live in fear unnecessarily for many years before having that conversation and learning that their risks are actually quite low. The same is true in a family where there is a known genetic condition. People will say, well, I look like my mom and I act like my mom, so I must have gotten that mutation from my mom. And and that's not how genetic works. Uh, genetics mutations are passed down at a 50-50 chance from mom or dad. It's You can't predict if you got it or not. You really have to do that genetic testing. And so we end up being able to help a lot of patients who assumed that they had a high risk of disease based on whatever pretense, that they actually don't have it. And that can release a lot of burden from them, allow them to relax and enjoy their life and give them a sense of purpose that doesn't have to be fearful about the disease that they're not at risk to develop. 
Right. I mean, I think that that's a, a good uh, counsel in, in that respect to make sure that people are not necessarily have to live in fear. Now, there is also another component in that. I mean, if um, people have a genetic component, say that their their mother, their grandmother has, has cancer and that this is genetic um, linked cancer, the chance that you actually as, as are become a patient, that you actually get the cancer yourself, for example, is relatively slim. I, th- I heard numbers in, in, in up to 20, 22, 23, 25 percent. Nothing more than that. Tell me a little bit about that. So if you have, um, if you're doing genetic testing for hereditary cancer syndrome, the, we believe in some conditions like BRCA1 and 2, for example, or Lynch syndrome, which is a common genetic condition that causes colon and endometrial cancer, that your risk would be about one in 300 for each of those diseases, just in the general population. So it's it's less than 1%. The likelihood that you have the condition would increase if you have a young age of diagnosis or multiple people within a family who have a similar diagnosis. Additionally, some populations have a higher risk of having these gene mutations. One well-known population is the Ashkenazi Jewish population. And instead of the 1 in 300 risk for a BRCA mutation, it's a 1 in 40 risk that they would have the condition. So knowing your risk factors helps you predict the likelihood that you'll have a mutation, but the average person does not have a hereditary cancer syndrome, and that that alone is reassuring for many individuals. Right. So it is not necessarily that if, if, if you come back with a test and it says that you have potential risk of getting, it is a potential. It is not a fact that you get the disease. Yeah, and that'll depend on what gene we find the mutation in. So some genes, P53, for example, or APC are, are the names of two genes where the risk for cancer is very high. It's close to 90 or 100% in some cases. Other genes cause a 10 or 20% risk to have cancer. And you may not make any medical changes to that risk because it's fairly close to the general population risk in the first place. So understanding the gene itself and the known increase in cancer risk associated with it will help you and your physician customize any change in medical management uh, that would be recommended to prevent or detect cancer earlier. Now, early in the program, we were talking a little bit about, uh, again, about uh, organizations, that, the direct-to-consumer organizations. We were looking at companies like My Gene Council uh, that really helps people in trying to understand the information that's presented to them. Um, one question that comes to mind is, and, and that may be the case with, for example, some of the direct-to-consumer diagnostic, of a, not diagnostic, um, genetic tests, is, is, is the issue of false negative or false positive classifications or an, an indication that there may be something, but it is completely unknown to what that may be or what that is based on. Tell me a little bit about that and how important is it if you get some information like that? So with the, the genetic, the direct-to-consumer testing, you do have an increased risk for a false negative. And I would just like to explain that the test is not designed to look at everything. So you would expect in many cases where it doesn't pick up a particular mutation or gene or disease that you're interested in looking at. Uh, with the false positive side of things, we, we see that the most when patients access what we call raw data. So a 23andMe test result will be downloadable online and it will show you very specific things about your health and your ancestry and same with any other direct-to-consumer test. When you go and talk to the company, they'll also allow you to download the data set that was used to 
understand those results. And the average person absolutely cannot make any sense of those results. So what they end up doing is then uploading it to a company that analyzes and interprets those results. While this is a great tool and something that people can use to have a deeper understanding of their health, the quality of data that the original testing company released was never meant to be used for clinical purposes. So it wasn't curated in the way that a clinical data set should be curated. It wasn't validated in any way that we would need in order to use those for medical management. And the concern there is a false positive. There is a high probability, and our study showed a 40% risk of a high false positive rate in that specific circumstance. And it, it stems from using data that was never intended to be used in a clinical setting to make medical management decisions. Let's take a short break. After the break, we're back with our interview with Laura Panos-Smith. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. Clinical trials allow researchers to introduce new hope by providing participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. You listen when your body says, I'm tired, or I'm hungry. What if your body said something else might be wrong? Gynecologic cancers, cervical, ovarian, and uterine cancers have symptoms So pay attention. If your body says something may be wrong, please listen. Learn the symptoms. Get the inside knowledge about gynecologic cancers. A message from HHS and CDC's Inside Knowledge Campaign. This is the Oncazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. Our interview today with Laura Pano-Smith was recorded on June 8, 2019. So that, that's the false positive and the false negative situation with using direct-to-consumer testing for medical management. But you highlighted something that I, I think deserves a, a conversation as well, Peter, and that's the variance of unknown significance. And those are a common result from a clinical grade laboratory where we've found a change in your DNA that we've potentially never seen before. It's just unique in you. And the thousands and millions of patients that have been tested before, we've we've not seen it yet. And usually with that type of result, we're unable to say with any certainty that that's a change in your DNA that causes disease, or that's a change in your DNA that makes you unique as an individual from these other people. And so we classify it as a VUS or variant of unknown significance. That is also very important for people to understand, right? It is because it's a risk when you do genetic testing. People do think I'll find out if I have this or not. And they don't understand that there's that entire gray zone in genetic testing that they might get a result that we, we can't interpret yet. So when, when, when you get something like this, a false positive, a false, well, false negative means that you are basically classified as not getting a, or not having a risk for a disease, but potentially may have a risk. Uh, false positive, obviously, the, the opposite that you classified as maybe you have a risk, um, but you don't have that risk. In this case, when you are with the unknown um, classifications, how important is if people have those 
data sets um, they can download, that they talk with a, a, a counselor like you or uh, a counselor that they may find through My Gene Council? I think it's critical uh, to ensure you don't have or reduce the risk as much as possible, rather, that you don't have a false negative or a false positive. With a direct-to-consumer test, there is no way anyone can tell if their result is a false negative or false positive unless they meet with a genetics expert and consider additional genetic testing. Uh, And that's the, the best advice I can give you at that point in time. There's no way to assume you do or do not have a false positive or a false negative. With the the other topic, the variant of unknown significance, that is a matter of time more than anything else. You can certainly meet with a genetic counselor. It might be very helpful to have that conversation and understand more. But the likely scenario there is that we will not be able to determine what that means until additional data is collected uh, and we're able to change the interpretation there. So it's, it's different in terms of how the patients would respond. But with false positives and negatives, there's a more uh, clear next step to try to make sense of the results. You, you earlier in the program, you also mentioned about a, um, a study that uh, you, you were involved in, in which you compared certain uh, diagnostic tests. When you look at the direct consumer and you look at the more clinical uh, driven tests, um, which there are, or medical tests that basically look at your, your genetic profile and, and more, what are some of the key differences? Because I assume, and I think most listeners will assume the same thing, is that the technology to get to the information is for most companies or most organizations the same. But there is a distinct difference in uh, maybe the validation of the information. How does that work? That's a fantastic question. Uh, most of the tests in it's 2019, most of the testing done today is used on a next generation sequencing platform. And that type of technology is is fairly standard across the genetic testing industry. And so the assumption that they're all the same is a common one because of that common technology. The way you set up the quality of the technology itself is is different between the laboratories. There's a, I'll throw one scientific term at you, which is depth of coverage. So how many times we're looking at a specific place on the genome is usually very high in a clinical diagnostic laboratory, which will result in higher confidence that the result is real and is accurate. Whereas in a lower cost direct-to-consumer setting, the goal is to run as many patients through their software as possible. And so the the depth of coverage is usually a lot lower to facilitate faster testing and, and less expensive testing. The areas that they're focused on reporting out, they'll make sure the quality is there and that the coverage was sufficient. But in all of those other areas that their test wasn't designed to detect, they are not using the same level of quality or detection as you would see in a clinical lab. Uh, I'll give you one other example on the difference in quality, and there's there's many, but the other one is just sheer interpretation of the results. A lot of the direct-to-consumer tests will use automated software tools to report out the results, and there may not be a physician or genetic counselor involved in the review of the raw data or in the review of the interpretation of the results. Whereas in a laboratory test, there's much more, or a medical laboratory test, there's much more scrutiny given to the result itself and the way that the result is reported out to the provider to ensure an accurate clinical interpretation. Um, So those are two common examples that I see between the types of laboratory testing. 
And 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 that is of of course a, ma- a major difference, a major concern um, to some people. But people need to understand that there is indeed a difference between clinical testing, uh, clinical organizations, organizations like your organization, you work for Ember Genetics, and um, organizations that, that really kind of look at the recreational value of things. Exactly, and and they're not the recreational tests aren't bad. Uh, they're just designed for something very different than the types of testing that we're doing on the clinical side. And I think that is uh, important to uh, to underwrite. It's it's not the fact that they are indeed that they are bad companies or give you bad data. It's the purpose is different. Exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. It was fun being on the Uncazine brief today. Now, what makes Embry Genetics stand out among its peers? The company focuses on quality and accuracy with the genetic testing processes by employing a so-called multi-step verification process. This means that everything the company does is with the patient in mind so that the scientists working for the company can deliver the most comprehensive information available. In addition to a patient-minded approach, the company gives back to the scientific community by freely sharing aggregated, anonymized data so that every patient can contribute toward research and the understanding of disease. For more information about Embryogenetics, please visit the company's website at embryogen.com. For more information about genetic testing, how it is used, and if it is something you should consider, visit the website of the American Cancer Society at cancer.org. You can also visit the website of the American Society of Clinical Oncology at asco.org. Here you can find more doctor-approved information about cancer and genetic testing. For us here at the Oncosine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your support. Thanks to your support, our program is now available in the United Kingdom via UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via iTunes. And in the United States, the program is distributed via iHeartRadio in addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange. In Arizona, you can listen to the Ongezin Brief via Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about our distribution and where you can listen to the Ongezin Brief, check out our online journal Ongezin at Ongezin.com. You can also find Ongezin at Facebook or Twitter. If you like the Ongezin Brief and want to help us make this program possible, visit our online journal Ongezin and click on the link, the Ongezin Brief. Here you can find more information on how you can support this program. And your support for this program is really important. It allows us to bring you interviews with experts involved in the development of novel diagnostics and new treatments. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER, C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866, and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening, and join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngers in Brief. The Oncazine Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. 
For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.